Welcome to Field Talk, where we explore the stories that shape individuals and provide insight to help us grow and succeed. I'm your host, Craig Sheffield, and today we have a fascinating guest joining us, Timothy Barkley. Timothy's journey from competitive cycling to the world of manufacturing is an inspiring testament to passion and perseverance. Throughout our conversation, we delve into the unique challenges and successes of running a business in the bike industry. Timothy's transition into creating and testing bike products and carving a niche for his business in Taiwan. But that's not all. We delve into his remarkable venture into music, using his creative skills to weave deeply personal and emotive stories into his albums. So join us as we explore the fusion of business, innovation, and creativity, inspiring us all to reach for new heights in our own pursuits. And without further ado, here's my conversation with the remarkable Timothy Barclay. Thanks so much for joining me here. It's so nice to have Tim. And I'm in a friend's studio today uh, in Tainan, where you are based currently. And let's let's just start a little bit where people might not expect because you know you have an album uh, that you worked on for a long time. People can go and check that out and listen to it. And I encourage everyone to. But I want to start with a question about your other things that you do in your life. Okay. So let's think about where, where your money comes from, I guess, and where your time spent uh, when you're not making music. Yeah, okay. Um, I have um, an e-commerce platform. Uh, I come from a sporting background. I was a competitive cyclist for a long time, uh, including even when I came here to Asia. I raced here for a number of years. I developed and ran teams here. Our teams had a pretty significant impact on how the sport operated in Taiwan. Prior to me coming and setting up teams here, it was more of a government-sponsored thing. The government basically paid for everything. And then I brought the the Western model of bringing uh, outside sponsors in and, and running it the same way that it would run in a European or North American or Japanese market. Um, so I did that for a number of years, raced for a number of years, thing that got a little too old. So you're a competitive cyclist. Yeah, right? I was a competitive cyclist for a number. I was a Canadian champion in 1998. Wow. Um, yeah, I raced in uh, all over the place, right? Got paid to get an airplane and go fly and race in Korea and stuff like that, in Japan and Malaysia and uh, uh, other places. Yeah, uh, I did that until um, it was just untenable, you know? Um, and I'd gotten married. My son had just been born and I was thinking, you know, I'm getting long in the tooth for this. I need to look at the next phase of my life. What am I going to do? And so I had a lot of uh, contact with sponsors and factories here because of the manufacturing that's done here. And I've been already doing product testing and product development with a number of, of factories. And I thought, well, you know, one thing I can do is uh, maybe buy products that are manufactured here and sell them online. And I, it took me a while to sort of find my footing with exactly how that was going to work, um, what products I was going to use. And I set up a website and this was uh, 2007. So it was a little earlier on for e-commerce platforms. You know, mm -hmm. we weren't exactly groundbreaking or anything, but it was still pretty early in the game for, for e-commerce. Yeah. 
And I, I set that up. We still have the company. It's called BDOP Cycling, B-D-O-P Cycling.com. Mm-hmm. We design and manufacture a bunch of different bicycle products. Uh, we also resell uh, from brands like Novatech and Pillar and uh, and First. We sell their products as well, as well as our own products that we've developed. And I spend most of my time doing that. The luxury is, is that it gives me actually a lot of free time. Because development is... You know, development's really intense, right? It's it's focused and it's intense. But it, once it's over, you're kind of done. Then it's all about just warehousing and and taking orders and shipping stuff. Mm. And that's not as time consuming. I can do that when I want. Mm. Um, you know, sometimes in the evening I'll go and just throw on the computer for a little bit, do a little bit of work for an hour, and then sleep in or go to the gym with my son the next day or something like that. So it offers me a lot of flexibility. <laughs> if we could just go into that just for for a little bit about. A couple of things. Hopefully, you can tell us a little bit about how you possibly got into cycling. I assume you still you still like cycling. I mean, you're still doing things related to cycling. Yeah, still. Yeah. So, are you still uh, cycling to this day? Um, I had um, a bit of an illness. Actually, I shouldn't say a bit of an illness. I had a pretty serious uh, injury, and then I blew, basically blew up my spine. I mm-hmm. ruptured some discs. That took me off the bike for a little while. I got back on the bike. I put in a couple more years of racing and then I had another unfortunate incident that took me off the bike. Hmm. I ride uh, a little bit for fun, but I can't do four or five or six hours in the mountains anymore or anything like that. I can go out for a nice little pedal and enjoy myself. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I still still follow the sport. I'm still involved that way. And I mean, what kind of led you into that that path of (laughs) becoming a competitive cyclists like i know most people that i'm familiar with that do some type of competitive sport um they're usually highly motivated by by something but usually they're just competitive people by nature in some way would you say that's what you are or were you inspired by somebody else uh actually a bit of both which is kind of funny um i've i've played a lot of sports prior to that from from being a kid i, I played football i rode um I think Americans call it crew. Uh, I, I did some other sports and uh, I'm in North American football. Um, and then, you know, that was within the school system. Once you're out of the school system, it's a little bit harder to maintain those, those sports. And uh, so I was a gym rat for a little while, uh, but I always liked competition. I liked playing sports. I liked the, the intensity of it. Um, and I also liked the relationships that you develop with people, even with competitors and stuff. Where, you know, you, you push each other and, and you, you can find new sort of bounds and things within yourself that you're, you're capable of doing that maybe even surprise yourself every now and then. But I had a girlfriend I was living in Toronto and I had a girlfriend and she went and she bought a bike one day and she was riding it around and she said, I bought a bike. I'm like that looks like fun. I wrote, I mean, I rode a bike everywhere as a kid. Like I know how to ride a bike. So I went the next day. It's a true story. I went the next day to the same bike store where she bought her bike. And I said, Hey, you're the sales guy that sold my girlfriend a bike, you know, blonde girl, blah, blah, blah. I described the girl and said, she bought this bike. Um, show me a bike that's like one model better. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, the competitive start. So I bought a bike and then I started riding and I'm like, wow, this is awesome. This is, this is fantastic. I loved it. And then I had a friend who actually worked in a bike shop and he was like, you should try racing. I'm like, what? And we started riding together. And luckily, the owner of that shop was a former junior national champion. 
And so right away, I got to ride with somebody who really knew what what racing and competitive cycling was about, um, even though I was absolutely clueless. And so I got some very good guidance and sort of just expectations and things. And he knew my competitive nature and he understood that I'd played a lot of other sports prior to that. And it was just a fit. It was just another sport that I enjoyed. Man, I, I think it, probably anybody that has gotten into any one thing can relate to that story in so many ways. But yeah, the one thing that really struck me is just you happen to be in close, close contact with this right people, the uh, the person who sold you the bike. I mean, the girlfriend to start out yeah, with yeah. Uh, this kind of journey was interesting. And then you one-upping her with the bike model. <laughs> and that probably led the the other guy to maybe, you know, see that, oh, he has, he's interested in a little bit of the geekier aspect and he enjoys doing this thing. And as soon as you probably started working with the other person who had experience, uh, whether it was like a, a mentor relationship or a coach, um, whatever it was, then just fostered um that drive or like it it made it bloom inside of you so that you continued to do it more and more yeah i definitely tapped into the drive i'm i'm the most driven lazy person you you're probably going to meet um i i i have this desire to do things like it's to create or to build and it can literally be anything like folding a paper airplane, the satisfaction I have in finishing it and throwing it across a room or building a business or building a bike or creating a song, just any kind of creative process. I mean, literally building furniture, framing a window, anything like that, the, the satisfaction that I get from conceiving of something, creating the thing that didn't exist prior to that idea and then finishing it and going, all right, that's a thing done. I've, I've accomplished a thing however minor or inconsequential it might be, I just take personal, great personal satisfaction in that. That kind of drives me to do a lot of things. So anytime I presented with an opportunity or, or um, yeah, I guess an opportunity to, to create a thing, I, I, it really appeals to me. Yeah. And, you know, luckily that led you into some kind of, uh, or I should say it probably has nothing to do with luck, but, you were presented with the right opportunity and the right people around you that led you into a business that kind of uh, allowed you to continue to use that knowledge and and the resources and people that you knew to continue to make money from that yeah, uh, yeah. experience that you had. And uh, maybe you can help us um, or help me <laughs> understand if you think there's any kind of um, system or steps that you could tick off or, or like communicate to somebody else about doing your projects? Or would you say that each one of your projects are completely unique and require a different system, a different approach? That's a good question. Um, I don't know if they require a different approach or the same approach um, or as much as it's simply how I function or how my brain works. Um, very often when I'm beginning a project of any kind, I do have a vision of an end result. It's not like carved in stone. I don't say, no, I have, I'm, I'm working towards this exact precise goal and it can't deviate from that at all. That's absurd. 
but I do sort of have an idea of this is what I want to achieve. I want this sort of thing to happen. However, um, along the way, you know, things happen, right? And then you can make discoveries, you can have impediments, good luck, bad luck, a million different things to sort of happen to alter what the end result is. But I do sort of start out with some kind of nebulous vision. And then what I do is I, I definitely am like a break it down in steps, achievable goals, right? Like, okay, so there's my long-term vision. And now I'm going to take the next step towards that long-term vision. And I'm going to set an, an achievable goal, something that I can accomplish, and then take that next step and that next step and break it apart like that, which is actually an interesting analogy for sometimes in, 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 in cycling um, or when you're doing a, a big, long mountain climb, right? Beginner riders, they're like, okay, I've got this climb. It's going to take me 25 minutes to get up this mountain or whatever it is, you know? And they, they think of the whole mountain and it's daunting because it's a giant mountain, right? But instead, what you do is you break it down. This section is this, this section is that, there's a flat section. This is with a big rise over here. And you break it down into pieces so that you can accomplish each piece as you go and work your way up the mountain. And as somebody who was a very mediocre climber, I'm just not built for that. I had to do it that way. And it, it made sense to me. It fit with how I approach projects and other things as well, right? By breaking it into achievable pieces. And then sometimes you, you learn too, right? Like, oh, I've achieved this thing. And in that process, hmm, maybe I need to reevaluate or rethink what I'm doing or how I'm doing it or, or what my end goal is. Or maybe I've learned or discovered something that might alter what I think my end goal might be. And then the last thing is never to be absolutely married to your end goal because sometimes it's turns out to be something dramatically different, right? And, and that should still be as satisfying. It shouldn't be a disappointment. That would be unfortunate. Mm-hmm. It should still be, I've, I've achieved the thing that I wanted to achieve, sort of. I've finished the thing, the task or the ah, task makes it sound negative. Um, I've set some sort of challenge or goal before me and I've achieved some semblance of that result. Yeah. I, I totally agree that it has to be somewhat flexible and, and part of the process or what's interesting about, you know, any kind of project, uh, in my mind is like where it ends up, you know, the surprise of where it ends up is like part of the pleasure that I get from entering into. The project itself because we all have an idea of what we'd like to achieve where it's like i'm gonna make a painting that looks like this artist or i'm gonna make a a song or or any kind of thing that should be like this in the end but we all know practically that at least on our first attempt <laughs> it's never really or rarely going to be that way but you do learn a lot about yourself and the different steps that you take and like, maybe I can adjust this to make it closer to that because I feel mine doesn't work. Or you may find that the result that you achieved is um, as desirable as what you envisioned. That's, that's a, a, it's a good point. And I find this even more so with music more than other things with, with business and manufacturing and stuff like that. You, you're kind of limited. Like if I design a product, it has to be compatible with other products. So there are, there are, there are limits and there are finite things that have to happen at the end of the day, right? It's not fully creative and fully up to you. 
But with music, that's not the case. Perfect example. On the album, there's a song called I Just Go Along. And originally, I, I actually wrote that like two years ago. And I was kind of had this Roy Orbison vibe in my head. I don't know why that day I just did, right? And so I wrote this song. And in my head, I thought, you know, this is like a, a tribute to Roy Orbison. And then I thought, but I'll never be able to sing this song. Because I thought vocally in my head, it should be someone like Etta James doing this song. And I'm like, that's definitely not me. And so I tried many, many different iterations of that song, trying to make it work for myself. And they all sounded terrible. I hated every one of them. And I put it aside. I'm like, I okay, this I'm going to abandon this, which I hate to do, but I, I'm going to abandon this. It's It's untenable. And then maybe a year and a half later, I was flipping through some notes, a songbook stuff. I was looking at it. I'm like, oh, I remember this song. I always kind of liked it. Like I had a little soft spot for it, but I could never make it work. And so I was sitting down at the, the MIDI keyboard there. I started plunking away. And then I kind of got this idea. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. What if I did this? And then I just sort of laid out this really sparse piano thing. And then I don't know what clicked in my head or how I got from there to what I eventually ended up with, with this idea of a person just sitting at a piano, having a drink, sort of lamenting. And then that's kind of how the song, and then suddenly it was like, click, got it. I've got it. I understand the song. I have a way I can do this song. And then I did it. I was really happy with the end result because it was, but it was so, so far removed from the original idea, right? And, but yet it was, it was equally, it's one of my favorite songs. It was equally or even more satisfying at the end of the day because I did find a way to make it work, to make it into something that I, I liked. Yeah. I really enjoy that song. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You should. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's interesting to hear that you started out with one vision and, uh, you found a way to make it your own, um, by, I don't know, uh, creatively uh, using your limitations and ideas in a in a different way so that in the end it may not come close to the idea of the two artists that you not had at all. not at all yeah but uh it still spawned from that thing right and and i think yeah especially anything that's that requires multiple steps and stages um it's nice to it's nice to be that flexible about it first off, but it's also nice to take a break, uh, from some things. And I realize that's, that's not possible for everybody. If they got to meet a deadline, you got to meet a deadline. No, no. But I don't think that part of doing projects, the deadline aspect is often helpful. It's just unfortunate that a lot of uh, creatives in the, in creative industry, there are deadlines placed, but I think it only, it hurts that process. It does. But even, even, I mean, I set it down for a while because I was focused on other things, but even sometimes where I'm in, where I'm working with, with my, within the company, I have, a, I have a deadline or something that I need to, to get done. Sometimes if I get frustrated or I found that I'm at an impasse, even just setting it aside for a day or two, right. And then totally focusing on something completely different and then coming back to it with a, with a fresh sort of a fresh mind can go a long way in, in, getting past whatever block or obstacle or hurdle you, you come up against. Yeah, I, I like that idea. I think, you know, it's been noted probably a thousand times that, that 
plenty of geniuses. They do some mundane job or like mundane task regularly just so they can relieve their mind and get the subconscious to start working on that. I think for um, anybody that's working on, on projects such as, you know, an album or building a business that if you have multiple kind of things going on, um, of course, it's not great to split yourself, you know, spread yourself right. too thin. Right. But uh, if you can kind of go off to focus on a different part of your project or a different project altogether, when you do get stuck and you kind of get blocked by, it should be this, but I don't know how to do that. And then yeah. just get away from it and take your mind off of it and then come back to it. You can get a fresh perspective. And that seems to be what happened with that song. Yeah. And some of it, I, what, this is actually interesting. One of the things I really miss about being able to write on a regular basis was that sometimes I would have something in my head, right? Some little problem or issue or thing that was unresolved that I was thinking about. And so I'd hop on my bike and the first little bit while I was riding, that'd be in my head, you know, still sort of playing over. And then eventually I would sort of zone out and be in the Zen part of the ride for a couple hours. And then I found very often that when I came back home and I was done, whatever issue had been turning over prior to the ride that I'd sort of pushed to the side had been resolved. I had my answer, you know? Just letting letting it work out subconsciously, or even sometimes getting out of your own way. Sometimes you already know the answer, and the problem is you. You're you're the one saying or 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 limiting yourself, or you're the one that's putting up the obstacles, real or artificial. You're the one that's in the way, and sometimes you need to get out of your own way and do what you already know you want to do, or how you want to do it, or whatever. Yeah, I think um, I'm probably. I do that to myself, I should say, whenever, like you were talking about earlier, you get married to a certain idea of something. And so I can't achieve that result. And I don't know how to get there. And I just stuck in that rut of, I need to do this. I need to make it sound this way. I need it to feel a certain way, um, function a certain way, whether you can take like coding or any type of one problem. But there, there are tons of alternative solutions that you could you could accept yeah. probably, but you're trying not to because you you're driving so hard to do it that one way that you can't see it. Yeah. And you just got to get out you're of that. Fixated get out on your own, it. Get yeah. on your way, get out of the rut and yeah. there's no other way to do it. And I think exercise um, is a great way for most people to do it. Even just a 15 minute, you know, run or, or whatever you're into. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's your, instead of being cerebral, do something physical. And it's it's so separate that your your brain will work on that. You're, you're talking about object fixation in a way. It kind of motorcyclists talk about object fixation, where you're driving your motorcycle and there's a tree, and you keep looking at the tree and thinking, okay, I don't want to hit the tree, I don't want to hit the tree, I don't want to hit the tree, but you're looking at the tree, so you hit the tree. Definitely, uh, right? No, yeah. I remember my father uh, telling me that type of thing, and so I, I've always had this idea in my head. It's like. If I'm looking at something, I know I should know my motor. I should tell my motor skills to like go in a different direction. So I've always tried to consciously do that. And, and I wonder if it's even achievable in some ways, because there's no way to tell really how far you're, you're, you're driving in the opposite direction or whatever. Yeah. It's just impossible. Well, you're you, staring you can't at the adjust tree. your course accurately while you're fixated on the thing. And, uh, that's a beautiful way to think about any problem that you're fixated on when i when i first started uh I, I i road raced and uh where i lived there was a lot of mountain bikers a uh, couple of olympic champions world champion like high level mountain bike guys that i rode with and uh i 
didn't want to race mountain bikes because when I rode on the mountain bike, it was for fun and I could enjoy it. I knew if I tried to racing that it would just become another thing where I've got to structure my training and program. And, uh, so I didn't want to do that, but I rode with guys who did. And, uh, one of the best pieces of advice for this kind of object fixation thing is like, don't look at what you don't want to hit. Look at where you want to go. And again, that translates into any kind of project or any kind of thing that you're working on. Keep an eye on what your end result that you want, that nebulous sort of finish line or thing that you're trying to create or that thing that you have to get done by that certain deadline or that product that you're needing, you're working on or whatever task you have in front of you. Focus on that. Don't get stuck focusing on the obstacles and the things that are making it difficult for you because that is not, a, you're less likely to succeed in my experience if, if you're focused on, on the, on the problems instead of on the end goal. We, we don't mind. We just switch gears just slightly and uh, talk about working with other people. So bringing, bringing in relationships kind of into this conversation, which we talked a, a bit about with um, some of the people that, you know, led you down the road of becoming a cyclist. Um, and then kind of glossed over the, the whole transition from <laughs> one side of the ocean to the other and uh, starting a business. But I'm sure there's some other people that you could have mentioned and um, maybe you can help us understand the, how you started your business, maybe what were those connections like and how are you managing working with other people and maybe your own personal relationships? While I was racing, um, I, you know, obviously was not making, I wasn't making enough money to completely support myself and everything like that. So I had a, I had a job as well, which describes a vast majority of people, even at fairly elite levels, right? Um, so I think it's a real blue collar sport. There are stories of guys working in factories before they finally, finally signed that first big pro contract. <clears throat> and, uh, I never got that big pro contract, but still I, I, so I had to have a job. I was working for a distributor here as a product manager. I had worked in the bike industry at this point for a number of years. So going from being a competitive, a competitive cyclist who also worked and had worked in the bike industry. And how did you get into working in those positions? Did you know somebody in the company? You just well, the 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 my friend uh, my friend Jack and uh, the guy originally Len Ramsey, who uh, was the junior national champion. He, my friend Jack, worked at a bike shop, and we were buds. And then he sort of drew me into the world after I bought my first bike. We've been friends for a while, but we were friends for other reasons. And you know, he was just like this dude I knew that worked in a bike shop. Um, and then once I got my bike, we connected on that level as well. And he said, Hey, you know, we're looking for people here. You're a mechanically inclined guy. Why don't you come and, you know, I started off at the very bottom, um, sweeping floors and doing basic tasks and stuff like that. And I was mechanically inclined. Uh, so I learned very, very quickly, uh, had some good people in the first shop that I worked at that gave me some very good instruction. Um, and then. Yeah, I continued working on and off in shops and within the bike industry. And part of the reason why I came to Taiwan was that I knew that manufacturing was done here and I kind of wanted to move up the food chain. I've been working in retail for quite a while and I was just done. So I had sort of two options at that point. I was, I was on the West coast of Canada and, uh, I could have either moved to a city where I didn't know anyone and do inside sales for a distributor or some other company within the industry, or I could come to Taiwan, 
with my girlfriend at the time. And uh, I knew manufacturing was done here. And I didn't have like a specific goal or anything. I, again, one of those nebulous ideas, right? They make a bunch of bike stuff there. I'm a bike guy. I, I can find something. And so that's what happened. I came here and fairly early on, I met somebody um, who became one of my first sponsors uh, through Continental Tires um, and Campagnolo, the Italian uh, component manufacturer. So I met up with somebody very quickly once I, once I was here and started racing and forming teams here. And this, the, the process actually is, is pretty straightforward. If you, if you sort of familiar with mm. the industry, it makes so kind of sense. You, you kind of came here on, it sounds like, uh, forgive me for saying this, but it's kind of a whim almost of like, it's a, taking a chance. You took a big, yep. big yeah, chance to come here and, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. and you did get, you did pick up yeah. a sponsor, you said. And I mean, were you using connections and relationships that you had, uh, back in Canada to get those? I came, I came with sponsors as well because I'd, I'd won a national championship. So I did have some sponsors and, um, I got a bit lucky. I met the right people at the right time. I'd gone to a couple of races and just sort of kept my eyes open. I kind of knew how things worked a little bit. And, uh, I got lucky and met a person who was running a, a distribution here and they introduced me to the first factories and people that I met. All right. So you were a competitor in the field and then you just happened to meet other people. Were you building or thinking about this business while you were racing and you were doing that simultaneously? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I knew that, I knew that at some point, obviously I'm getting older and, you know, um, I was a, you know, a decent level racer, but I was not ever going to make a bunch of money at it. Right. I had discovered my mortality early on by racing and training with guys who went on to be world champions and, and Olympic champions and stuff, I got a good sort of idea of, okay, I'm a right about here. There's my level. That's right. Fit. Right. And I was happy with that. It was pretty good, <clears throat> but it wasn't, you know, the phenomenal, uh, I wasn't there. I knew it never would be. So that was actually fortunate because I, I didn't have unrealistic expectations, right? I knew I've got a time where I can do this and I really love it. I really enjoy it. So I'm going to keep doing this. But while I'm doing this, I've got to find a way to turn this into a career that's going to last beyond racing. Um, and so I always had that in the back of my mind. Whenever I met uh, managers or people from factories or sponsors or things like that, it was something I was always sort of thinking about. And then I met the right person. We had the right conversation and sort of got me started. Cool. So... What were some of the first things, or I guess, gave you the idea that, um, you know, getting into manufacturing was really right for you? Um, other than you liked bikes and you know that there are many components that go into bikes and we make things here in Taiwan and still do from what I understand. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, you know, was there something that, that, that just drew you to, to that? And then, um, on top of that question, not to pile on, but, uh, <laughs> You know, um, I keep, I keep going back to like, I just don't understand the, the, the beginning steps of how you built this, this thing that you're, you seem like, uh, you, I, I rarely hear you talk about it, but it just kind of runs itself. So like, I'm just curious to dig in. <laughs> um, so I worked in shops for a number of years in, in, in North America and Canada. And, um, I had always had a technical background. I like building things. 
when I was in high school, I was a piston head. I, I built cars with my friends. Like, I, so I had a decent understanding of, of mechanical stuff. Uh, I uh, did a, a mechanical drafting and pattern making course at the vocational high school that I went to. So I, I could read, I can read drawings and, you know, I had, I had a good fundamental understanding of materials and stuff. So, uh, and also being just within the sport, you, your gear, you learn about your gear, you understand your gear, you have new stuff coming into the year. Why am I using this? Why am I using that? Working in shops, I had hands-on experience with a wide swath of um, manufactured goods. And it, it just, I liked it, right? It went back to that idea of, um, of creating and making stuff. Right. And, and that satisfaction I get from creating anything. So I knew that manufacturing was done here. That just kind of appealed to me. Um, as I said, I worked in a, I was managing a retail shop, retail bike store, and I was done. I just had, couldn't do it anymore. Not like in like, Oh my God, I can't do it anymore kind of thing. But I'm like, okay, I, I've kind of gone as far with this as I can. I, this is not my future. This is not my career. But I probably want to stay within the bike industry because that's where I have experience and knowledge and some basic connections and stuff like that and some understanding of how things work. And so when the opportunity came to come to Taiwan, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. They make a bunch of stuff there. So there's got to be something I can do, right? I came here, I started racing, and I made connections through racing for product testing. And that's what I did originally as I, I approached various factories uh, like Richie. I don't know if you're Richie Components. They're a pretty famous brand. Uh, they were just developing their their wheel program. And uh, Tom Richie, who's the actual like a legendary rider, um, had been long retired by that point. Um, he was testing stuff in, in North America, but that required shipping stuff from here to North America, testing it, then sending it back and talking with the factories. Like It was just this cumbersome process for product development. And so what I did was I went to these factories and said, Hey, I'm a technical guy. I ride the crap out of stuff. I'll help you. I'll be one of your other testers. And so I put together these spreadsheets and, um, I give me your stuff. I'll test it and I'll give it back to you at the end of the day. Um, and I even used my teams. I was building teams here at the same time. So I'd have like six guys testing chains or spokes or tires or wheels or frames or whatever. And then I'd write up reports on the products, give the products back to the factory, and then they could, you know, do destructive uh, uh, testing on it, and they could look at what wear and tear and things that we did, and get our feedback from stuff. So I started working with factories like that, helping them have more real-time development on product, and that was useful for them because at that time, a lot of the uh, the manufacturers in Taiwan they didn't have people on staff that rode, so they had engineers. But the engineers didn't have end user familiarity with products. So they were designing like engineers, not designing like end users. So I filled in that niche. And that's sort of how I started originally. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, that's uh, still amazing that, uh, you know, to me, from my perspective, uh, knowing very little <laughs> about cycling coming from rural Texas, <laughs> uh, even though there's plenty of places to cycle. Um, <laughs> But yeah, there's not really a whole lot of competitive cyclists that I, I knew. Um, but yeah, it seemed like you, you found something, you honed in on that place where you could help, um, kind of 
just expedite the process, relieve somebody's stress of shipping something across an ocean, for instance, uh, immediate testing, and then providing that extra experience that you had from actually being the cyclist. And, and, a, and a guy who'd worked as a mechanic as well for years. So I had like good firsthand knowledge of the competitor stuff as well. And, and, and on, on top of that, you were building teams, like you were saying, so you could have a whole crew of people testing out things. Yeah. And that's how we get sponsorship money. That's how we get paid as a team to finance our teams and pay my salary. Okay. What's with the product testing? And so when you were, you were kind of draft, you said you were making spreadsheets, you were drafting up kind of reports for these companies. Do they have clear guidelines for you that you needed to follow or are you kind of making these things up? No. <laughs> so making them up. That's interesting to me. I yeah. mean, you think about stress testing, uh, any kind of component of, of a bike, I guess, and then you're, analyzing or trying to find some metric uh that you're using i mean how did that work well i mean they have they have their own tests right like they do destructive testing and they have their own in-house testing but it's done on machines right so what i i always said was like look hey you can do your your testing and materials testing your stress testing on these machines and the destructive testing which is by the way really really fun i've done a lot of destructive testing with factories it's always fun to break stuff but I said, you know, but you don't have real world testing. What is it? What is it like with your, say, your wheels or your chains or your cassettes? What happens to them out in the real world when they get used by a bunch of people for 10,000 kilometers? Well, well, what happens to them then? Right. When you get them back, what do you look at? And they could not do that kind of testing. They didn't have any, none of the factories here had that capacity at all. So I'm like, yeah, here, give us stuff because we need stuff, right? Especially consumables. For the team, like we need change. We need this stuff because we're going to burn through it anyway. So give it to us. We'll give it back to you when we're done. I'll tell you, you know, who wrote it, how they wrote it, what kind of riding they did, you know, how much mountains flat, how much rain, what kind of lubes we used and all this sort of stuff. And then you can look at it at the end of the day and see what happened to your product. So basically capturing the, the information that you could based on the rider yeah, conditions, everything. And then giving it back to them and they're kind of using the data, that raw data per se to determine how they want to adjust their product. Okay. That, that makes sense to me yep. now. Awesome. Yep. And I mean, now you said, um, if I'm not mistaken, you're kind of manufacturing components and, and designing things. I design and then we have, we choose our partners to, uh, uh manufacture for us because we're a small company. We're a really small company, right? Uh, we're not, oh, not a big player by any stretch of the imagination, but that's fine. Um, because it gives us the most flexibility, right? We're not locked into stuff for years on end. Finding a niche, right? Finding a, a product or, or a need within the marketplace, something that's not being done, not being done well, anticipating a need that should develop in the fairly near future and trying to find a product to fill that need. It's a bit of a hit and miss, you know, like I've, I've had some great ideas that just never played out the way I thought they should based on how good I thought the idea was and how good the product was that we delivered to the marketplace. Sometimes people just ask or again, maybe some of it too is that as a small company, we don't have the market penetration that we, we could have that, you know, if we were accept a big brand's name on it, then it might have sold like hotcakes, but because we're a smaller company. It's harder for us to establish credibility for our products. Um, that's, that's been changing in the last couple of years. 
Um, cause like we've been around since 2007 now. So we're a known entity, but again, we're still a small company. We're still a niche player, which is kind of what I wanted, you know, like, I mean, I, I didn't want to become a giant conglomerate thing susceptible to being bought out by some French sports conglomerate. You know what I mean? Like, that's not what I was after. I didn't want to be a corporate entity. I wanted to be something that was more real. You know, our, our customers, I spend time talking to our customers still, and it's personal. We build personal relationships with the people who buy our stuff. We have a lot of repeat customers. And uh, just so, I mean... I'm not that big of a, a cyclist. I mean, I own a bike, but I, I don't use it that good <laughs> that much, unfortunately. Um, mostly because it's so hot. <laughs> yeah, that's an issue here. It definitely is hot in the summertime to ride. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm just curious, like, what kind of things uh, are you manufacturing? What what are some of the interesting things, maybe that you've designed, maybe that have failed or that have succeeded? One of the things that I I think it it. It didn't fail, but it didn't succeed. It basically was a wash. Um, I'm, I'm focused more on road bikes because that's where my experience is. That's what I raced for a number of years and, and now more gravel. Um, but a number of years ago, road bikes went from having rim brakes where the brake pads rub on the rim, right? To having disc brakes like a motorcycle or a car. And there was a period of transition in there. And at the time we were manufacturing, uh, a lot of carbon fiber rims, which are very expensive. And because you no longer have a brake binding on the rim, you don't need to add that extra material there for a braking surface and also to deal with the, the, the compression forces of the brakes. So it allowed, it freed up the design to make rims that were specifically for disc brake bikes. So we were one of the first companies to bring those to market before all the big players. I saw the need in the marketplace two years out when it first started happening. I'm like, this is a trend that's going to, like, this is a trend that's going to continue. You know, um, I didn't anticipate it that it would completely take over the market, but I thought it would become a significant enough piece of the market to warrant investing in the tooling and the time to create a, a niche product to fill that, that, that's, that slot. And we did that. And then with, uh, within a year, then all the big brands came out with theirs as well. And, you know, we just got swamped and we also didn't have the, again, the market penetration at that time to really push our products. We basically broke even ish, made some money ish on it. But I'm most proud of that because it's a significant product, right? It's not cheap to make carbon fiber products. So it was, it was a gamble and it was a pretty significant investment. And I was able to foresee that need in the marketplace, create, uh, design, create and produce and release our, our product into the marketplace to the point where, um, uh, U.S. national team riders at the world championships were riding some of our products for cyclocross. Yeah. So, I mean, and that was kind of like, ooh, okay, success. But financially it was. Uh, a wash. We made some money at the end of the day, but not anything like we could have if I just bought the same stuff we've been selling and turned that money over, you know, 10 times or 20 times or whatever. So it didn't, it wasn't rewarding financially, but it was rewarding just personally. And also it gave us a little bit of credibility with our, some of our customers because they'd seen that we delivered this product and we were making this product. 
right? Like, oh, okay, these guys aren't just, you know, selling other people's stuff. They're actually designing, making their own stuff. That was one of my faves. Uh, right now, we make a cassette. Uh, we don't make, sorry, we, we have a factory that makes them for us. Uh, the cassette of the gears that go on the, on the back wheel, right? Um, and they're machined out of one piece of alloy, which um, normally what they are is a piece of a bunch of plates, sort of, kind of, that are stuck together. So they're all manufactured separately and then assembled. And that has its own issues. Ours are machined out of one piece of alloy. And it's absolutely beautiful. And uh, uh, we call them the beat-off cassettes. And we're seeing increasing sales constantly over the last two years because we've gained a bit of penetration into the marketplace and also enough people in enough places have been using them successfully for long enough that you know people said, okay, these are reliable products because they're very lightweight. So people are suspicious of things that seem too good to be true. Um, but we've proven that these deliver and they're durable enough. And where we have had an issue from time to time, because with any manufactured good you do, right? That's, I don't care who you are. Um, a 1%, 1% failure rate is absolutely phenomenally good, but that's still 1% of your products fail. Um, so where we have had failures, we've backed up our products and simply replaced them without question. So people have confidence in, in buying them. There. And we're just now really seeing the returns on that. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I never thought about how the cassettes actually like built or like they were different parts. Or it's all one thing. I mean, I've taken apart a few bikes in my life, but <laughs> I haven't thought about that. Uh, that's great that it had such success and uh, it's still selling well to this day. Uh, yep. I got to ship a bunch on Tuesday. Awesome. So... I know we've talked about uh, a lot of your uh, backstory, cycling, um, your business, and uh, we've, we've touched on some of the music uh, side of it, right. even though this is a new project. And of course, your day-to-day is obviously uh, shipping parts <laughs> to uh, customers all over the world. But what would you say is uh, your favorite part or favorite story you could tell about this uh, album that's, that people can go listen to? It started off um, a couple of years ago. I was I was diagnosed with uh, cancer, um, pretty serious and aggressive cancer, and it had metastasized. And I was trying to figure out a way to deal with that. Um, just how to wrap my head around the idea. You know, my my son was uh, in his early teens at that point, and you know, to just. Not not trying to be morbid about it, but just thinking like, hey, man, if this really does not play out very well, uh, where am I going to be? I'm not going to be anywhere in a couple of years. And so um, I was luckily lucky to come to this space uh, with with Seb and some other people and and just jam and play music. And and that was really therapeutic for me, you know, like like we were talking about earlier, taking your head into a different space sometimes to to so you help you deal with other things in your in your life that you're dealing with. And, um, and then I sort of, I'd written some lyrics with no real intention. It was just a cathartic process. And we were jamming some stuff out. I'm like, Hey, I came up with a very simple riff, really basic riff. And we sort of started jamming on the riff. And I said, I got some lyrics. You guys want to try this out? So I started singing the lyrics that we had or that I'd written. And it was like, Hmm, this actually kind of has a, has a vibe, has a feel to it. I really dug it. I said, guys, do you mind if we like record this? And so we recorded it and I went home and I listened to it. 
And then I came back and said, Hey, I think I want to record this song. I kind of, I kind of need to, you know, I kind of, I kind of need to make this song. Um, partly again as the catharsis, but also just thinking about where I've been in my life and what I've done and what I'm leaving behind kind of thing. Even if it's not now, right? Like even if I, you know, live for a bunch of more years, what am I leaving behind? What do I have to show for, for having been on this earth? And so we, we were ended up recording that song. And then I had some other songs that I'd already written, uh, like Bathroom Tiles, I'd written for a previous band. Um, and then we'd been jamming that out, and I kind of threw in the, the five-four bit in the middle there. And we're like, hey, I kind of dig this, and Seb loves it because he loves playing the five-four bit on the drums. I'm like, yeah, it's fine if we record this. And and then, okay, now I got two songs. Oh, okay, hold on. And I just wrote this other song. Wait a minute, now I've got three songs. And I thought, wouldn't it be really cool to to do an album? Like, it's a lofty goal, but you know, I'm 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 getting the benefit of doing this. I'm getting the, as we like to call it when we come here, the musical therapy. You know, when we're in this room, um, I'm getting the benefit of that. I'm getting the satisfaction of creating things, and I've been around music my whole life, and I can't believe I haven't done this before. Like, I I literally was surprised myself, and 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 was surprised with myself, saying, "Why why didn't I do this?" 20 or 30 years ago like I, I come from a musical background what the hell mm-hmm. you know and and so all of those things sort of conspired to make me want to make a, like a proper album mm. I, I guess I, what the best thing that I could <laughs> follow that that story uh, with is my own kind of therapy with music <laughs> it's it's always been that and to some degree you know, there's, there's a bit of me that's a bit, uh, similar to you in that I'm also a bit competitive <laughs> from times. And that's probably what drove me in the beginning to want to get a little bit better or do more things with music for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I developed some skills, um, through that by practicing things over and over and over again. Uh, and, and that's all well and good. But uh, I was very rarely encouraged to express myself in some kind of free form way. And uh, I much later, you know, kind of have discovered that that joy that uh, can come from just just watching something unfold that wasn't there before, you know, whether that's lyrics or melody and uh, it's very therapeutic to to do that, it, for better or for worse. You know, sometimes it really doesn't uh, strike you or, or communicate maybe what you thought, but um, just the process of it mm-hmm. is so nice and enjoyable. And I can still get lost just looking at a a fundamental, you know, a method book though, because uh, it, it it goes back to like a meditative state for me. Uh, so even just practicing scales and, and things like that, it gets me lost in that headspace. It gets me out of whatever I was thinking about before and just puts me in a good mood. It's like that Zen I was talking about from riding, right? Like that, 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 that emptiness, that nothing space that you can get into that is, I think, essential for, for good mental health. You know, that time to just let everything be, yeah, the quiet time. I'm curious to know um, if there were any specific, you know, stories or or memories that inspired any of the songs that you wrote in this. 
all of them. Um, the the whole idea of the album is is I don't want to say trauma. That's a really overused word, and I think it's a bit a bit much. But you know, we do have experiences through our life, and maybe at the time we're experiencing those things, we're just dealing right, and we don't have the opportunity to reflect on them or to understand them truly. And even if you understand them in the moment, with time and distance, maybe you understand them in a different way. And so the whole point of the of the album was to look at things that had happened in my life and sort of take stock or reflect on them or look at them from where I am now. If I were to choose one song, I think um, I've Said Things was an, was an interesting song. In, in some blurbs that I've put on various, uh, like Bandcamp and stuff like that, right? Where I introduced the song and stuff. I created this Louis Pantalonis character. And uh, I talk about, you know, Louis looking at his life and saying, hey, man, I've done some bad stuff, and but I want to be a better person. I want to move on. So how do I do that? And that was myself, right? Like, okay, if I'm doing the whole taking stock thing, if I'm looking at my life and the things that I've experienced, I'm not proud of everything that I've done. No one is. Right. But what, what do I do with that? Do I continue to dwell on those things? Do I continue to let them affect who I am now? Do I continue to let them influence decisions that I'm making? When I want to be a better father, I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better man. So what do I do with those things? Right. Like, okay, I can look at them and I can take what I can from them. I can learn from them. I can recognize my mistakes and try to grow from my mistakes, but I've got to put them away. Right. Like there's got to be a point where I just stop and I bury them somewhere deep and dark and never go back there again. And that's where that song comes from. That's what that song is about, right? Like I was looking at my son, right? And he's becoming a, a a striking young man. And I'm really proud of who he's become. And again, thinking like, okay, how much of this am I going to see? Right. This is again, going back to when I first received my diagnosis and stuff, how much of this am I going to see? What kind of man am I going to see and become? And so when can be better? And that's what that, that's why I wrote that song. That's what it's all about, right? Like just wanting to be better for other people. Yeah. I think it's, it's impossible to, to like change what people remember about you. (laughs) You know, you, we, we've done what we've done and people will remember what they will of us. And unfortunately we, we do have a tendency to remember those uh, negative experiences a lot more than we seem to remember the positive ones. Yeah. And, and, and more, so it's like, and they're more important to you than they are to other people. Like you remember the things that you did that were, you're maybe a little bit of cringe now. You're like, Oh man, I can't believe I did that. And other people are like, you did what? I don't remember that. Mm. Right. We, 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 we put that on ourselves, I think a lot. And, and that's what I'm talking about. Right. Those things that, that are, are not constructive. They're, 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 I don't want to say the word toxic. They're not constructive. They're actually destructive. Right. And they inhibit you more than anything else. You're not learning anything from it. It's not helping you or anybody else in any way. And you can't, I don't think you can just continue to dwell on those things. Once you've taken from it what you can, you have to put it away. Yeah. You have to focus on the next step, the next phase, like take your eye off of that tree. <laughs> so that yeah, you can, yeah. And look where you're going, not the thing that you yeah, don't want to hit. Precisely. Yeah. It's, it's all the same kind of principle there. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, trying to communicate that through 
through music or, or through a story and like in a concise format, like a, like a pop song, uh, for instance, or something that has kind of a, a verse chorus kind of structure is not easy. I, I know from firsthand experience. So, I mean, it, you took on this character of, uh, you call him Louis Pantalones and, uh, you kind of, you know, made this character yourself or modeled it off of yourself. But at the same time, he has stories that overlap your your own experiences um did you feel like that was constrained constraining in like a negative way whenever you're you're writing a song that's trying to communicate something so kind of uh deep and personal to you or do you find it was easy to to get those ideas out oh i found it was actually easier right because i could had plausible deniability (laughs) (laughs) i could i could take a step back right and and almost think in the third person um, cause it's, sometimes it's hard to own up to shit. Sometimes it's hard to, to put yourself out there. I think, especially as a man, you know, we're not encouraged to do these kinds of things and we're very often ridiculed for it. You know, it has the opposite effect, um, to display any kind of uh, intellectual or emotional, uh, vulnerability or, or fallibility. Yeah. So by creating a, a separate character, um, I could let him take it on yeah. the chin for me. Right. And I could, I could say whatever I wanted to say or try as best I could to express other musically or lyrically the ideas or the emotions or the, um, sentiment. Sometimes it's just an idea. Sometimes it's not even, not even a completely formed idea. It's just a, 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 a feeling, you know, that you're trying to get across to the audience or the, the person listening. Yeah, something that I would have been experiencing at that time or something that Lewis would have been experiencing that time. And sometimes it's just a lilting horn, right? Or um, a, a, some strings sweeping through. Hmm. It's, it's just an emotion and, and it's not a, a statement or a clear formed thing. It's just in this moment, this is the emotion and here's how it expressed that emotion. Hmm through this sound yeah music's beautiful in that way then that it is abstract and yet you can get quite a number of things uh from it as many people do from visual art in the same mm-hmm. way but i like that you know music has this this other type of texture which is you know sound waves that can be you know transmitted through your body and and absorbed and kind of intellectually stimulating yeah it's a physical experience. Yeah, and I like that. So I, I do encourage anybody that's going to listen to the album to get, you know, some some nice speakers if you can, but headphones will do. <laughs> Absolutely. Headphones are a must. I I recorded the album with the idea of headphones in mind because most people listen to music on headphones now. So even sometimes with the doubling of the vocals or some other things that we did, right, the idea was this is for headphones, for the headphone listener. When you listen to it on speakers, you don't always mm-hmm. get that. But you do on headphones. Yeah, it's more consistent that way. Yeah. I yeah, I agree that yes. a lot of consumers pretty much will only listen to things on their headphones. Yeah. Um yeah. just a, a matter of curiosity. Like, did you have any you said you didn't really experience recording a full album or anything? Did you have any experience recording uh, any of your songs or anyone else's material before you started this project? No. I mean we I was in a band before and we tried some self-recording stuff. Um, because I was curious and, and I thought, Hey man, this is, you know, we're having fun here and this sounds pretty good. I didn't have any, uh, goals or aspirations with it in mind, but I was like, let's just record this. I want to hear this. I want to hear what it sounds like. 
to somebody else on the outside, right? Not us, because we all love it because we're here. I want to hear what it sounds like. And so we try some self-recording, failed miserably. It was just terrible. Um, but, we, but we did that. And then um, I think I did one other song where I'd, I'd self-recorded. Oh, actually, you did that one. Um, another song that I self-recorded. And that was one of the first ones where I came to you, actually, with it um, and said, hey, okay, I've recorded this. I know it's a mess, but what mm -hmm. happens? What happens next? How? Well, what do you do with it? I know it's going to sound better, but what's the process? And that's the curiosity in me, uh, the, the, the creative thing in me, right? Like, okay, I've created this thing, but it's not done yet, right? There's more that can be done to make it a thing. I, I don't know, whatever it's mm -hmm. going to be, right? Uh, and that was that cover that I, we, that I did. Uh, oh, it was at the Composers Collective. Did you share something? Uh, that actually became on the album. That was when I was first working on She Stayed Around. I was making that sort of South Parky animated tongue-in-cheek oh, video. Yeah. yeah. Um, and those videos are actually on the website. Uh, I, I built the website with lewispantalones.com. You can find all the videos there. And it's on YouTube and stuff too. And so that that was actually a really time-consuming, but really fun project for that, mm -hmm. for that whole song. It's a true story of my mom and dad. Um, and how they became my mom and dad without the, you know, the sticky bits. Um, and so I tell that story and, but I, I use this ridiculous animation. It's very South Park inspired. Absolutely. Um, it's got singing cows. Like it's, and, and it's, I, I don't know. I, I just really enjoyed making it because it's kind of a ridiculous story. Um, and it, and it's juxtaposed with a very dramatic style. The music is done in. And so I thought it'd be kind of fun to do, to do the video that way. Um, well, yeah, it was your first uh, kind of attempt or to record something, right? I mean, before that, you said there was only a band and group. My Life. Okay, the name of the song was My Yeah, Life. yeah, it's a Dido cover. I did it. I, this was during lockdown. And I did the video where I filmed myself doing the song all over my house, but repetitively, you know, um, showing like what it was like, you know, when you couldn't leave your house and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so I recorded that. That was the probably the first time I made a serious attempt at trying to record something. And, uh, you know, what are the tools you were using to, to get that done? Like, how did you come across these things? Were you asking friends and like, or just looking on the internet or what? Uh, a bit of both. I mean, I've, I'm, I'm lucky to know people here who are um, uh, into music and stuff. But part of, part of my whole sort of philosophy about doing this album and everything else I've done prior and what I will continue to do is the barrier to entry. And also that goes back to my business too, the same thing, right? The barrier to entry. How hard is it for a person who's not doing this to start doing this? The barrier to entry to opening a business in Taiwan, like mine, is extremely low. You can do it with very little money. You need a CPA that you can find from a bunch of people. And then you have a tax number and then you're good to go, right? And compared to being back in the West, wow, that was eye-opening. And the barrier to entry to music, right? What do you need? I use free software, right? I haven't paid for software, even though I have software that came along with like my media and stuff like that. I kind of want to use the free software, um, for, for recording. Uh, I know it's not as flexible. I know it has its limitations, but I, I kind of want to do that. And even some of the videos that I do, um, what I do is I go online and I look at public domain videos. Like say YouTube, but it's not all YouTube, but let's say YouTube. 
and I'll, I'll I'll grab videos from there that are public domain, and then I'll hack up little pieces and use and then put them together and paste them together to tell the story that I want to tell. So it's kind of like a found art thing, you know, but digital. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of my thing with with the videos that we're doing and and the way that things are being recorded. The stuff that I record at home, um, our bass player, our drummer, and and whatever who else is being involved in the project, they self record. They send it to me, I throw it together, I mix it up to what I think I kind of want, and then I pass it on to to you to become what it's going to become at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And that's how I want to continue doing things. I, I don't want to, you know, get a big band together, go in a studio and do all that kind of stuff, because that's how it's been done forever. And that's not the world we live in. I, I kind of want the music that I'm doing and the process process that I use processes that I use to reflect what a regular person could do. I'm not, I'm not a regular person, but a person who's, who's just starting out, right? They, they have it. I've got an interface, a computer and a bunch of ideas. How do I, how do I do this? What do I do? What's the barrier to entry? And I want to show that it's can be low and you can still end up with something that sounds, I think pretty good that started off with very modest means. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I would say that for anybody, you know, starting out uh, doing anything um, that it takes a lot of bravery just to start getting into that process yeah. and then just, yeah. just go all the way through to even the point to make it this public thing that you seem to be doing more and more these days. So, I mean, you know, kudos to you for just putting it out there and like getting it done. And, and every time you go through that process, you know, you might, you might change a little something here or there mm-hmm. because it's either easier or you, you like the result, the end result better. I've learned but, too. Yeah. yeah. And you're doing that with not only your business, you know, you're doing that with your creative projects and, and I'm sure you're doing it with your, your relationships and the, the way that you're conducting yourself, you know, every day, that's how we function and get better. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. At least the effort, right? At least the effort. It's not always successful, but it's about the effort. It's the intention behind it. Last couple of things. For you, I know that, you know, you have this uh, project that you had worked on and and it had taken a lot of time, I'm sure, uh, outside of your work life, which is also, you said, not terribly busy. It allows you some, affords you time to right. do other things. Yeah. Um, you're lucky enough to have that. Absolutely. Not everybody. Absolutely lucky. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, you worked in, you worked yourself into that position really. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's not so much luck as it ends. That is a little bit of planning maybe, and then some luck on the yeah. side. Um, and so it sounds like you're, you're managing your life the best you can. And, uh, you know, that, that's, that's amazing. Would you have any advice for other people that are in different situations trying to manage their work and, and personal life? And would you do anything differently maybe? This this may sound a little off. I'm not sure, but um, I'm I've always been a person who's been pretty busy. I've, I've always been doing more than one thing at one time. Uh, you know, working and having uh, playing sports or going to school or doing all of those things at the same time. So I prioritize my time. Um, I'm a punctual person, and I expect other people to be punctual as well. Not that I'm going to rag on somebody if they're five minutes late. I mean, that's just douchey. Uh, but I just, my expectations, right? Like, uh, I've got the time and instead of just sitting in front of the TV, watching some Kardashian kind of nonsense, 
um, I could do something here. I could, you know, without being like OCD about it, without being like beating yourself up about it. If you do decide to sit in front of the TV and watch something stupid, then do that. Then that's what you're doing. Right. And be okay with that and enjoy it and do it as, as much as you want as to the best of your abilities. But I do manage my time. I do value my time. Um, because partly the sport that I played is a very time consuming sport. So if I was going to try to have a life outside of that, I couldn't not manage my time. So manage your time and don't waste time unnecessarily. Like and fully articulate this. For instance, um, I love going out and having a drink in a bar with as much as anybody, but I've heard the, I was so drunk last night story a thousand times. And that's an underestimation. Unless you're telling me the most amazing story ever, it's just not interesting anymore, right? Like it's not new. It's not exciting. It's not interesting. And it's kind of a waste of time to, to do stuff like that. So I started to recognize like, what am I doing? That's just pointless, right? Relaxation is not pointless. Lying in a hammock at the beach and listening to the waves for a few hours while you nap is not pointless. It's fantastic, right? Commuting for an hour every day, both ways can be pointless, right? But throw on some music. Like, how can you make it not pointless? So maybe I'm not saying this as clearly or, or, or as well as I'd like to, but find a way to make your time useful, right? Even if you're doing nothing, that's still useful. Yeah, that's that's kind of it, right? Um, if I'm going to spend time with my family, especially with my son, it's not, we're not just sitting around on our phones, right? We're having a conversation about something. We're doing something. We're, we're interacting. I'm, I'm, that, that time is cold. You know, I'm not going to piss it away doing something stupid. Even if we're watching right now, we're, we're uh, binging Breaking Bad, but like as we're watching, we're talking about the character development. He's really into things like lighting and, and choices for background stuff like that. So we're talking about the construction of the show and how it's done and why they do this and why they character do that and why they film it this way. And have you noticed they use the green lights for this and the blue lights for that? Like we're watching it and it's sure it's entertainment, but also at the same time, we're riffing on it, right? Like we're, and we're interacting and it's great, valuable time between the two of us. I wouldn't give that up for anything. So find a way to, to, to make your time valuable because it is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> I was thinking of, yeah, I have commutes. Um, I'm, I'm driving to work to, to teach at schools, uh, do various things. And, uh, yeah, I try to listen to a podcast and you know, try to learn something, listen to audio book, um, you know, put on some music, mm -hmm. like you said, uh, just finding ways to fill up my day with, with things that I find valuable or that I, I think could better myself. Um, and just, inadvertently i hope help help other people <laughs> sometimes it's even just entertainment right like entertain myself instead of like you're saying in a commute instead of just like me me that's your commute why not throw in some music and like man i've been listening to this album in a bunch of years and the fun where it takes you and like that's that's beautiful yeah absolutely and then that that bonding time like whether that's uh you know watching a a film or a tv show or playing a game um, or just having a conversation with somebody like we're doing, you know, those, 
you know, you, we don't, I see too many families and too many people that will go out to eat with their partner or whomever. And uh, it doesn't seem like a whole lot of communication no, is going each on. Into their deep dive into their own phone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and I think that's unfortunate. It is unfortunate. There's a time and a place for that for sure. Right. Like I'm, I get sucked into my phone like anybody else, but I also put it down right when I'm around other people. Yeah. yeah. Knowing where to draw that line um, mm-hmm. is important to decide for yourself, like when that's okay. And when it's not. Yep. Anyway, um, any other, you know, parting words of wisdom or things that you want to uh, tell other, our audience, uh, people we're talking to? I think it's still important for people to look for new things to do, new ways to challenge themselves, new things to discover, new things to understand. I think you need to, I think it's important as humans for us to continue to grow and evolve and change and discover. And I think once you lose that sense of wonder, that curiosity, I think it's a sad thing, you know, and, and it can be something really, really small, like just a little self-indulgent little hobby that you develop for yourself on that you like to do that does nothing but satisfy you. I think it's rewarding and valuable and, and yeah, it's, I, I think we need to keep that in our lives, right? Find that those things that, that can do that for you as opposed to just going along and then every now and then take a risk right right like instead of saying no i can't do this i can't do that i can't do this i can't do that say why can't i try and it's okay if i get it wrong why can't i try well thanks for taking the time talking to me and uh sharing your story with all of us so that we can learn a little bit about you and uh get an inside perspective into your life and the thing that you created that everybody can uh go either listen to now or you could uh, go purchase one of your products. So it's been lovely to talk to you and uh, have you have a great rest of the day. All right. Thank you for having me. It's great. Thanks for tuning in to this inspiring conversation with Timothy Barkley. As I reflect on our discussion, I'm struck by Timothy's unwavering determination to pursue his passions, both in the realm of manufacturing and in the creation of music. His journey from competitive cycling to establishing his own company in Taiwan is nothing short of remarkable. As we wrap up, here are three key takeaways from our conversation with Tim that anyone can apply to their own lives. Number one, flexibility in the creative process. Embracing unexpected outcomes and evolving visions can lead to new and exciting results in any project. Number two, meaningful interactions and personal connections. Prioritizing quality time with loved ones and seeking out genuine conversations can bring fulfillment and nourish our overall well-being. Number three, pursuing passion with determination. Timothy's commitment to turning his love for cycling into a successful manufacturing career and venturing into music with minimal means serves as a powerful reminder that resilience and ambition can lead to impressive accomplishments. I hope you found this conversation as thought-provoking and inspiring as I did. Stay tuned for more enriching discussions on Field Talk. Thank you for joining me, and don't forget to share this episode with a friend to show your support. Also, if you or someone you know need help with an audio project from music to podcast to sound design, check out my production services at idfield.pro. Until next time, stay creative.